Two weeks ago, we woke up to the news of the horror of the shooting in Charleston, South Carolina. And, and we were horrified at the loss of life. We were horrified at the senselessness of it all. And in no time at all, as a nation, we were no longer just horrified, we were divided. Because people began using this news for their, their agendas. Politicians and the media and others were using it. And who are we going to blame? On one hand, we wanted to blame racism. On another hand, we wanted to, to blame guns. And then, for some reason, we wanted to blame medication in the midst of all of that. And in those first couple of days, the, the air was, was volatile. Everyone was simply reactionary. And then, as the media began interviewing family and loved ones of the victims, suddenly they were confused. And it was like the, their minds were just blown because instead of the vitriolic spew of the politicians and others who were capitalizing on the violence, they started hearing words of forgiveness. They started hearing words of, of peace. And they heard these Christians from this church sounding a lot like Jesus. And they didn't know what to do with that. Bethany Middleton Brown, whose sister was killed in the shooting, she said, I acknowledge that I am very angry, but she taught me that we are the family that love built, and we have no room for hating. Arthur Hurd, whose wife was killed, said, This is all surreal. But what I can say to that young man is that in time I will forgive you. I won't move past this, but I will forgive you. I would love to hate you, but hate's not in me. If I hate, I'm no better than you. And the daughter of one of the victims said, I will never be able to hold her again, but I forgive you. Now in, a, in a selfish world, that kind of selflessness stands out because more and more in our world the knee-jerk reaction to violence is more violence we, we want to get even and that may even be our reaction we, we see that kind of senselessness and we see that kind of suffering and we want we want punishment we want it now last thing we want to do is talk about forgiveness last thing we want to do is talk about forgiveness we want we're hurt and we want to hurt back to hear forgiveness because Christ first forgave us, that makes an impact on this world. People are, are blown away by that. And, and it raises the question, how do they do that? How does, it, how does this, these Christians, how do they forgive? How, it takes people by surprise. And you see, that's Peter's call here in 1 Peter chapter 3 when he's writing to us exiles, us people who don't really belong in this world where we live that our lives would be lived with such devotion to the image and the attitude of Christ that others would ask, how do you do that? How do you live like that? What is up with these people? Because they don't really make sense. The goal is to so live out the image and attitude of Christ that others notice. And, and Peter shows us that the impact that we have on our society, the impact we have on our community, is built into the way we live with, with one another, the way that we take care of one another. In fact, what he shows us, first of all, in this passage we're going to look at today is that the greatest impact that we have for Christ in our world, the greatest impact we have for Christ is the way we share a common heart. And we're going to look in 
chapter 3, verses uh, 8 through 22. If you're using those Bibles we provide for you in the seat in front of you, it's page 1015. In the past couple of weeks as we've made our way to this passage, we've, we've seen Peter address different groups within the church. Two weeks ago, we saw a passage where Peter addressed, he addressed slaves and masters and how they relate to each other because slavery was a big part of that culture. But more than, more than slavery, Peter wanted to talk about winning one another for Christ. So slaves, how do you influence your masters for Christ? Masters, how do you treat your slaves like Christians, like brothers, instead of just like property? How do you relate to them as brothers and sisters? Last week, we saw husbands and wives. And that through the conduct, through the way that we treat one another, how we might be one to the faith. And this week, he addresses all of us. No matter what our place is in society, no matter what role we fulfill, no matter what our relationships are like, he addresses all of you. He starts off there in, in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Now, I would be lying if I told you that any of this was easy. It's not easy. These two verses are just by themselves. Those two verses are, are not easy. But what you have to realize is that this was something that stood very different from the society that was around him. Peter's writing to people living in Roman society and, and living there in, in the outer edges of the Roman society. And it was a very selfish society. It was a place where everybody was looking out for themselves. They were looking out for their own interests. They were looking out for their own wants. The people of that time were motivated by their desires. They were motivated by their passions, by their hungers. It, it was a very different world than where we live today. Maybe not that different. But what stood opposed to that, the only different call was the call of Christians. Christians were the only people living selflessly in this very selfish society. And that made an impact. People noticed it. And you know what? They still notice. As much as, as, much as they might notice us as individual Christians and the selfless things we do, they notice it even more when we do it together. They notice this as a as a church. That's why gather comes first on these three banners. Gather, grow, and serve. We, we gather. We do this together. They notice the way we take care of each other. They notice the way we meet each other's needs. They notice the way we bless. And they notice when we don't. These five virtues in, in verse 8, he says in verse 8, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, in a humble mind. Those are normal qualities that every person in Christ should have. Those are normal qualities that everyone in Christ should manifest. And the, they point to the shared image of Christ in each one of us and what that looks like when we come together. And you look at those qualities. You look at those five qualities that he gives us. Not only do they go against society standards, but they, get, they set us up to get hurt. You live like that, you're going to get hurt sooner or later. If you live with those qualities, you, you will get hurt. I mean, you look at that one. You look at a tender heart. How many times have we been told growing up, toughen up, you know, your, your heart's too tender. You're going to get hurt. You're going to get yourself hurt if you keep on going around with a tender heart like that. You're going to get your heart broken. 
And you know what? We do. We get our hearts broken. We have too many times to count. And yet you search the Scriptures, and every one of those qualities is something we saw in Jesus Himself. Every one of those is something that we learned from Jesus Himself. Every one of them points people back to Him, and that's the point. And yeah, it means you're going to get hurt. And when that happens, verse 9, He says, When you're hurt, do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling. Reviling is his way of saying insults. You don't repay insults with insults. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. I've been insulted more times than I care to admit. I've been reviled more times than, than I care to tell you about. And as a church... There are times when we have been insulted as a church and someone has said things about us. They've, they've insulted us. How do, we, how do we respond to that? Well, we can't respond to insult with insults. <laughs> we can't respond to insults with insults because that just proves that they're probably right about us. Instead, we, we bless. We keep on blessing because that's how we give them Jesus. That's how we show them who our Lord is. And the point isn't that Brett is going to get what Brett wants because Brett probably won't. The point is that Jesus is going to get what he wants out of Brett. And that goes for us as a church. That goes for us as a community that, that they would see Christ first in our shared commitment to each other. That goes a long way. That goes a long way in those times when we're feeling the heat of the insults. That goes a long way when we're feeling reviled by others. And what Peter shows us is that in those times, in those times of difficulty, when those times we're having trouble with other people, uh, the way that we, the, the best defense that we have in those times is the way we cling to a common hope. Yeah, you know, I have a hard time thinking of, of any, anything that we go through as, as persecution. A lot of people like to throw the word persecution around today, and they'll apply it to just about anything that, that comes your way. I have a hard time thinking of the troubles that we face here as persecution when there's so many examples of horrible persecutions in the world. I mean, ISIS is beheading Christians, and then we have people like Pastor Saeed Aberdini that, that I introduced you to him a couple of years ago, and if you pay attention, you see his name out there on the news more and more. This is an American citizen of Iranian descent who is in an Iranian prison because he's a Christian. That's the only reason he's in, Iran, in an Iranian prison. He has now been there for over a thousand days, and there looks like there's no chance of him being released. His wife and his kids are back here. I have a hard time when I think of what he's going through. I have a hard time of looking at the insults, the revilings that we experience as, as persecution. And I don't think that's Peter's point, because Peter doesn't talk about persecutions. He talks about insults. He's talking about your relationships with your neighbors and friends that think there's something wrong with you because you go to that church, <laughs> that there's something different about you because you're involved in the church. Neighbors and friends and family members who, who just don't get it, who, who don't understand your commitment to Christ. Peter isn't thinking about persecution in a bigger sense, not yet anyway. He's talking about the day in and day out community life and community conflict that we all experience something we may very well experience. So what do we do? What do we hold to in those kind of troubles? Well, he goes on in verse 13. 
And he says, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer, you know, even if you should be persecuted, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, and yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile you, who revile your good behavior in Christ, may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, uh, than if, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Verse 15 is one that we like to cling to. We, we go back to verse 15 a lot. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. We tend to look at that verse as a very personal thing. We tend to look at it as my reason and talk about my experience and my feelings and what I've come to understand. We tend to talk about my Jesus and my answers to prayers. And, and let me tell you, you know, you ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. We make it a very, very personal thing. And that is a wonderful thing. That really is to have that kind of personal testimony. But the force of this passage, the force of this verse here in, in verse 15 is our shared hope. It's what we all have in common. It's what we all believe. So when someone asks you, what do you believe about Jesus? Your answer is the same as your answer. We all share the same answer. We all share the same hope. And that's, that's a lot of what I try to build into you here. That's a lot of what I like to do at this time here. And occasionally, you know, occasionally I preach and I, I stretch you a little bit. Occasionally when I'm preaching, I give you some big ideas. Sometimes when I'm preaching, I give you some big words and you're like, whoa, you know, brain full. Slow down, Brett. You know, and sometimes that happens and that's okay. You know, but we, we need to talk about those big ideas because if we just talk about feelings, if we just talk about our experiences, well, feelings change, don't they? Sometimes those feelings are there, sometimes they aren't. Sometimes you wake up on the wrong side of bed and suddenly you just don't feel like Jesus loves you today. You know, feelings change. Feelings can go one way or the other. Sooner or later, feelings fail, and if all you're doing is is chasing feelings, you're always going to find yourself wanting. You're always going to find yourself disappointed. But what can you know about God? What can you know about your faith? What can we know about God together? And then, what's beyond our knowing? What is there out there and, that is beyond our knowing and beyond our experience? What is beyond? What, what is it that just makes your head explode? You know, that you can't wrap your brain around some of these big ideas. And I'm not saying that you're going to understand every nuance of Christianity. God knows I don't understand every nuance of the faith. But, but there comes a, a point when we have to realize faith is not just about feeling. There is a reason that we believe. There's a reason for the things that we believe, and they are reasonable. It, it, Jesus isn't magic, okay? If you, if you take away nothing else today, just understand this. Jesus is not magic, Okay? I'm not up here telling you that if you hold your hands a certain way, if you scrunch up your eyes, and if you grip your mouth just right, that, that God's going to answer your prayers. That's, that's not magic. You know, there's, there's nothing magical about Jesus. It's not hocus-pocus. It's a firm foundation of faith. It's been established for, for generations, for, for millennia. And when we start with that firm foundation, when you build on top of that firm foundation, 
then those feelings that we have, those experiences that we have, they don't become the foundation. They become what accentuates the foundation. They, they lend proof to the foundation. The common hope, this is the common hope that, that Peter calls us to. Now the part that really gets us is, Peter says we're to explain this with gentleness and, and respect. Gentleness and respect. I don't know if I need to define those words, but everything I've seen from the last few days out there, everything I've seen and a lot of what I've seen Christians posting, a lot of Christians have no idea what the words gentleness and respect mean because I've not been seeing that. Instead, I have seen anger. I have seen hatred. I have seen stuff that just embarrasses me uh, to think of myself as, as, you know, it's like, I guess I'm related to that guy. You know, It's embarrassing. It's not being done with, with gentleness and respect. And the fact is, we got to understand, if people don't agree with us, it's not that they're too stupid, <laughs> okay? And if, if people are, it's not that they're too stupid to understand, and it's not that they're too smart to believe, it's just they have different opinions. Verse 16, again, says, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Again, it comes down to our treatment of others. Do we treat them the way Jesus treats them? Now, the goal isn't just that we can defend our faith. The goal isn't just that we can tell people why we believe what we believe. The goal, as Peter writes it here, the reason that we are in this world is so that we can direct them to a common experience of God's grace. How do we stand apart in a world that is very selfish? How do we stand apart in a world that is very self-centered? How do we show them that we have something different how do we show them that we have something that's worth having? How do we show them that we have something that, that we need? Well, Peter says we do that through our common heart, through the way that we take care of each other, the way we treat each other. Uh, Peter says we do that through our common hope, through the confession that we all share about who Jesus is and uh, how we tell that story. And we, finally, we, we do it through a common story of the grace of God, through a common message of salvation. Peter goes on in verse 18, He goes on in verse 18 and he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, those two verses, if you want to talk about stuff that's going to, you can't wrap your head around, there's a lot in those two verses that we can't wrap our heads around. We try to understand those. There are all kinds of different, uh, Jesus went and preached to people in prison? When did that happen? Where did that happen? You know, we try to understand what that's all about. Big ideas there. But the heart of what Peter is saying in those two verses is the basic gospel message. This is the good news of Jesus, that he suffered to bring us to God, that he died on the cross, he was put to death on the cross, he died for our sins, he was resurrected to new life so that we could have new life with him. And to illustrate his point about Jesus, he illustrates it with a story that they were all familiar with, that you're probably all familiar with, it's the story of Noah's Ark probably drew the pictures when you were a kid. 
you colored the pictures, you had the giraffe hanging out and the elephant, and you wondered why they took mosquitoes with them, and you know, you, you did all that stuff, you know. Everybody knows the story of Noah's Ark, and back then, 2,000 years ago, everybody knew the story of Noah's Ark, and Peter is using Noah's Ark as a type of Christ, and this is something we talked about a few months ago. If you guys remember, every now and then in the Old Testament, this, an event will show up, and we see it as a type of Christ. You think about a typewriter, those of you who are old enough to remember typewriters, you've seen them in museums and stuff. Um, probably, I don't know. The typewriter, you know, a typewriter has the keys, and then you, it has the type, and the type slams an image onto the paper. So if you press the W, it slams an image of the W. That is a typewriter. Jesus is presented in different types in the Old Testament. Every now and then, God breaks through, pushes a button, and Jesus shows up in the Old Testament, and it slams the image of Christ into this world. Moses talks to a burning bush. We're told that that burning bush is a type of Christ. When Moses hits the rock and water comes forth, that's, that's a type of Christ. David and his kingly reign over Israel is a type of Christ. And what Peter tells us here is that the ark, Noah's ark, was a type of Christ. If you were going to be saved from the flood, there was only one place that was safe, and that was on the ark. Everyone on the ark was safe. Eight and all, and then all those animals, everyone on the ark was safe. That was the only place that was safe. Peter says that's just like Jesus. Everything on earth was, going, was being destroyed. The only safe place was the ark. Everything was in chaos. The only thing that would rise above the chaos was the ark. There wasn't a second boat coming later. There wasn't anything else. You know, there, you couldn't get your own little floaties. You know, the only place that was safe was on the ark. And he says, that is Jesus. And if people say, I want to rise above the chaos of this world, I want to rise above the chaos that I've caused myself and that has been thrust upon me, where will I be safe? The only thing we can tell them is, the only boat out there is Jesus. The only way you're going to be safe is through Christ. And here, in the story of salvation, this is where he talks about our personal story. This is where he makes it personal. This is where he talks about your feelings. He goes on in, in your experience, and he goes on in verses 21 and 22, and he compares baptism, he compares the ark to baptism. Baptism corresponds to this. Baptism corresponds to the ark. Which, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. I feel compelled to explain to you that when he talks about baptism, he's not just talking about the process of baptism. He's not just talking about that. It's, this is... Uh, Nancy could help me. Nancy's my, my grammar helper. This is a syntyche, is what he's using. It's a grammatical term. I think I'm pronouncing it right. It's where we refer to the whole with the part. So in military terms, very often you will hear people talk about boots on the ground, right? And when we hear boots on the ground, we know that we're not just sending a bunch of boots over there, okay? It's not just boots. There's, there's soldiers in those boots. We understand that. And in the same way, Peter is talking about baptism as a part to represent the whole. He's talking about the whole process of salvation. And yet I can't help but think that he picks baptism because of the unique nature 
the unique shared nature of baptism. It's something that we all share when we come to salvation. It's something that we all share when we come to faith. And yet your own individual stories of baptism, they are separated by miles. They are separated by years. They are separated by degrees of either warmth or cold in that water. When I was baptized in January, it was very cold. We do our best to make sure it's warm now when we, when we baptize people. Each one of you has your own individual story, but each one points back to an event that we all share. And then, then we can talk about what got us there. We can talk about what we felt in that moment. Now that was displayed in an amazing way for us last week as we shared four baptisms last week. Four very different baptisms from 71 years old to 18 years old. 71 to 18. Try to figure that demographic out. I mean, that's, that's pretty wide. And, and so many different stories, so many different experiences of faith. One coming halfway across the country to be baptized, coming back for family, coming back because this is where family was established and this is where he wanted to make that commitment. Others coming from the examples of, of spouses. Others coming from the examples of friends. Others because of the example of, of their father and, and family. And you know what's been amazing over the course of this week since those four baptisms last week? I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with other people interested in getting baptized. Other people who are interested in taking that step. People who are not just talking about baptism, but they're asking me questions about church membership. They're asking me questions about what do we need to do to join? We want to make a commitment to this, to this body. We want to be a part of this. And so those four stories have sparked so many more stories, so many more questions, and so many more opportunities for you to tell your own story, for you to tell your story of faith. And you know, it's a great reminder here in verse 22 that Jesus' story didn't end with suffering. Jesus' story didn't end on the cross. Instead, verse 22 says that Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. The story of those believers killed in Charleston, South Carolina, their story didn't end with their deaths. Their stories continue because Jesus is alive. And your story. No matter the suffering, no matter the insults you experience or the suffering insults you don't experience, no matter what you feel or don't feel on any given day, your story doesn't end with your feelings. Your story doesn't end there. It didn't end in baptism. It lives on through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We share a common heart as we care for one another with sympathy, with tender hearts. We share a, a common heart. We share a common hope as we tell the same story about Jesus, about who He is, about why He came, about how He lives within us. We share a common hope. And we share a common experience of the grace of God, something that may be very uncommon in the world that we live in. And we come to a common table. And we share a common meal. 
We come to the table week after week, and it's not just to look back to 2,000 years ago. It's not just to look back to that Last Supper shared with the disciples. It looks ahead. It looks ahead to heaven. It looks ahead to the marriage feast of the Lamb of God. And it's not just the story of Jesus and the men that met around the table. It, it becomes your story. It becomes a part of your faith. It becomes a part of your life. It becomes a part of your trust in him. And what he shows us is that we come to this table, you, you truly find yourself, and you find your own story here. We're going to share together in just a moment and uh, take the, the meal together. And I just want to encourage you not just to think about not just your own story, not just to think about your own week, because sometimes it's very easy to think about just that week, where I screwed up, what I did wrong, <laughs> the couple of things I did right. Think about the story, the story that you have, the story that brought you to this day, the story that brought you to this place. Think about the story that not just didn't just bring you, but the story that connects you to the people here, the family that's connected. Maybe even the strangers that are connected. But the amazing way that, that our stories of faith, that that life of faith continues in each one of us. Let's pray.